VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday. Monday, October the 31st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's in the producer's chair. You'll be speaking with David when you give us a call to get in the queue. You know the deal. A topic of your choosing. Up for conversation. Uh, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So it's been a pretty super month of weather here in October in the province. Little skim of ice on my windshield this morning, but it looks like it's going to be a pretty mild evening, we'll call it, for the trick-or-treaters. So let's all do ourselves a favor, be really careful and mindful, and Proceed with caution if you're out and about in your rig this evening as the excited little trick-or-treaters make their way around. And, of course, there's been a couple of years where not too many trick-or-treaters were out for various reasons. So you might see a couple of older ones make their way to your door this evening because they've missed out. So, you know, there you go. Hopefully they'll have a fun, safe evening trick-or-treating. What a weekend for music here in the province. We'll get at the bottom of the preamble some Music NL winners, uh, which was a great event and hosted by our very own Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy out in Cornerbrook this weekend. But what went on at Mary Brown Centre last night was really quite something. So you know the deal. A bunch of different artists came together to, to put their talents on the stage to raise money for the Hurricane Fiona Relief Fund. And boy, did they ever. So at this point, the money raised, which includes not only the money raised at the concert and the federal government's match, and Mary Brown's contribution, some $1.69 million. Absolutely brilliant. So bravo to all the organizers and the artists and the patrons and those of you who made a donation from afar, maybe tuned in to hear it here on VOCM. So we told you last week that 50% of the Mary Brown's uh, proceeds, Mary Brown's uh, sales on Sunday would go to the Hurricane Fiona Relief. Greg Roberts on stage last evening said, no, 100%. The busiest day ever for Mary Brown's. They sold some $335,000 worth of their product. And Mr. Roberts, bravo, good on you. That's really quite generous. Every single cent is going to that relief fund pot. So that is something else. Man, oh man, $1.69 million. And to round off the evening, a rousing rendition of The O to Newfoundland. Some people call it a bit of a clapback at some of the decisions made at Memorial University. We can get into it. I'm still amazed with just how many people are writing me emails about it, but that's, if that's a topic you'd like to broach this morning, you are more than welcome to do it. A couple of sports notes as we ease into the week. I don't know if you watch any rugby, and of course you know I love it, so I tuned in to watch Canada's women's 15s play against the Americans in the quarterfinals at the Rugby World Cup, which is being held in New Zealand. So they beat the Americans 32-11. Now they've got a semifinal coming up next Friday, well, I guess Saturday here, uh, against number one in the world, England. The other semifinal is New Zealand versus France, and, of course, New Zealand, the five-time champions. But we've got England in the semi, and we're really playing some inspired rugby, so bravo. Sticking with the pitch, way to go to Munn's men's rugby team as they won the Atlantic Canadian title this past weekend at the University of New Brunswick. They beat Dal in the final 32-20. Now they're off to the Nationals. we got a solid side. I tell you what, provincial team members, national team members in the form of Patrick Parfrey. So way to go to the lads. A couple of uh, neighborhood kids in my area are actually playing. Andrew Shears, I'll give him a special shout-out. He was man of the match on Saturday with four tries as they trounced UNB. So good for them. Uh, a couple other ones on the big stage. I love tennis. <laughs> Canadian uh, Felix 
Oje Aliassim went into this past weekend number nine in the world and won the tournament. Again, that's three straight ATP tour, tour titles for Felix Oje Aliassim. And it's not like there was no big names in the event either. He beat number one in the world, Carlos Alcaraz, in the semi to get to the final, which he eventually won in straight sets yesterday. Becomes the only the second person in history of the ATB tennis tour to go through an entire tournament without getting broken. Getting broken means if you have your serve, uh, not not having the other pro- the other person your opponent win while you're serving. So, second time ever. So Aliassim looks like he has secured a spot in the ATP final coming up, which is the top eight players in the world and only the top eight players. So that's pretty cool for Canadian tennis. All right, a couple more quick ones. Let's t- let's talk about rowing. Yeah, rowing. So there's a local fellow named Cameron Hickman, and he's had a couple of look-ins at rowing for his country. He's been rowing for Brock University for the last few years, and over this past weekend, Brock University and oarsman Cameron Hickman won their second straight Ontario title. So the provincial champions, and Cameron Hickman is one of them. We were kicking around trying to put a uh, rowing team together, me and my sons and a couple of our buddies, and maybe, just maybe, if we can pull it off this summer, Cameron will, will be knocking. Uh, Ontario champs, Cameron Hickman, way to go, kid. And on the ice, whew. Alex Newhook, you know I love Newhook. Not the start he wanted, to say the very least, in this NHL season, his second full season. Got a big opportunity to center the second line, and finally he got off the schneid, broke the ice, scored a goal Saturday night, albeit in a 5-4 loss. It's his first goal of the year. It's his first point of the year. So hopefully the floodgates will open for him. And Dawson Mercer with an assist last night as well. The Growlers, 5-0 and to open up their uh, their season in the ECHL. pair of wins in Trois-Rivière this past weekend. Okay, a couple of what I'm considering interesting today's in history. So in 2000, the International Space Station saw its first resident crew delivered by the Soyuz TM-31 shuttle. So it's been continuously crewed ever since 2000, and also a number of Canadians have sat in the International Space Station, which sometimes you can see in the night sky. Back to Earth. This is a very American thing. So 81 years ago today, the workers completed what they call a great sculptural feat of the 20th century, Mount Rushmore. Of course, carving four presidents into the granite face. And again, that's not an insult to say it's very American, but it's big and bold and brash. So, of course, it's the faces of 60-foot-high heads of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln. 81 years ago today. It's such a strange thing. All right. So tomorrow on the program, we've got the uh, seniors advocate Susan Walsh coming on to talk about what she says is a need for a comprehensive review of what's happening in the long-term care facilities. We've heard some extraordinarily heartbreaking stories, whether it be with couples who have been together for decades, separated because one person needs a, you know, a different medical requirement. So one of them in a personal care home, one in a long-term care home is just is not good. Then we have the seven privacy breaches that we've heard about in Central. They're atrocious. I'm adding to the list things like the number of residents that are in restraints and or taking antipsychotic drugs. Oh, they've just passed me in. Ms. Walsh will join us on Wednesday. But if you want to bring anything to my attention, questions that you'd like to hear posed to the Seniors Advocate, you can do exactly that by just sending me an email or give us a call today and tell us your story so we can add it to the mix. All right, turn our attention to a little industry talk. Remember the most recent rounds of land sales at the CNLOPB came up dry. There was only one parcel available and there were no takers. So the deadline for this year's uh, land per 
the parcels to be purchased or to be bid on is coming up this week on the 2nd of November. So there's a big number of parcels out there. In one unit, there's 28 parcels covering some 700 or 7 million plus hectares. In the other package, there's 10 covering over 2 million or 2.5 million hectares. So we'll see what they bring. The minimum bid on the parcels is $10 million, and that's a commitment to the amount of work you're going to do in exploration if you are the this, this successful bidder. We know that the Baden Ore project, if you hear from uh, Minister Gibo federally, that it's going to be a little bit more difficult, possibly, to see any of these oil production opportunities being greenlit by the federal government. I think there's a fair debate about how what the role the feds should be in this. I wonder how Mr. Gibo's comments have been heard by other oil companies. And then even speaking of the most recent release from Mr. Gibo's office at Bay de Nord, there is still some outstanding stuff, and I guess we should touch base with Minister Parsons to see where we are on this. Now, Equinor hasn't formally made a business decision to move forward with the project. I mean, they say their break-even number for profitability was at about $35 a barrel, and of course we're way in excess of that, averaging over $102 a barrel for this fiscal year, if we're talking about the government. So the one outstanding issue there is even, let's just say, hypothetically, Equinor proceeds. There's still a debate, and I would imagine a fair ruckus between the province and the federal government, is who's going to pay the royalties given where Baden-Ord is, an outsider economic protective zone. It's Article 82 of the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea. So when you're outside that 200 nautical mile limit, there is royalties that have to be paid, based on that Article 82 in that Convention on the Law of the Sea, that Canada is indeed a signatory to. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. So it'd be nice to know who's going to be on the hook for that if you want to talk about the industry. And then the CNLOPB goes on to acknowledge the fact that some of the parcels in the 2022 call for bids do indeed overlap with the Northeast Newfoundland Slope Marine Refuge. So therein lies that conversation we've had many times about the so-called winners and losers. Oil industry allowed in some of these protective zones. Fishery, no. So, you know, even just really sounds like a misunderstanding about what the fishing gear does and the impact that the fishery has on things like coral and the seafloor. So, there are oil industry allowed in their fishery in some of these protective zones? Not allowed. That's a topic if you're interested, we can tackle it. Today, let's move off to the west coast of the province. I don't really know where to go with this story, but let's give it a shot. We've had Carl Diamond on this program, the head man at the Diamond Group of Companies, and the fact that well over a year ago, Mr. Diamond announced his plans to buy the Stephenville Airport and to reinvigorate the airport and the construction of all those massive cargo drones and the like. So it just all really sounds too good, and it's been continually proposed to me that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't. I don't know where this particular project is going to go. Mr. Diamond still says it's proceeding. It's in the 11th hour. There's some issue being adjudicated in the courts. If successful, and I I suppose I should own up to my own mistake, some while back when talking about this subject, I said that the airport had indeed been purchased by Mr. Diamond, but apparently that's not true. I was confused, and so I admit my, my mistake. I was confused because he renamed the airport. But in fact, the purchase has not been finalized at this point. So there's an old bankruptcy or an insolvency proceeding regarding the airport that has not been finalized. So Mr. Diamond says when that is a done deal, he will proceed with spending some $500 million at the Stephenville Airport and through its corporation. And of course, there's a 
provincial backstop of financial guarantee operations monies that have been put forward by the province. Now, the province has since said that they will not extend this particular funding, which is upwards of $900,000, to any other entity. It's still in place because the airport's still operation, operational. So if you're in the area, if you know more about it than I do, or you're bullish on it or opposed to it for some reason, we can do that. Same, same goes for... Anything regarding uh, World Energy GH2 and the Port of Port Peninsula, hot topic uh, once again in my email inbox. Let's make it hot on the airwaves. All right, moving on federally for a moment. So back in 20, 2011, there were changes made to the criminal code regarding sex offenders by then uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper. So what the Harper government did at that time said that if you are a sex offender convicted, you'll be automatically added to the sex offender registry. Anyone convicted of two sex offenses will remain on the registry for life. The Supreme Court has now ruled that that's unconstitutional. It sounds counterintuitive. You know, they go on to say some really strange things in some of the ruling. Is that someone may indeed commit two sexual offenses in what they call the same transaction. I mean, way to talk about it in a cold, callous manner. A transaction. A sexual assault is not a transaction. It's a heinous crime. But they do say that, you know, it's a too wide or broad a reach to have someone convicted of two sexual offenses or more to be on the registry for life. I think the majority of Canadians, you don't have to be legal beagle because this all comes down to human nature. We're, we can all have an opinion without being robed as a Supreme Court justice. It just sounds like there's potential for widespread problems here. You know, apparently it's very, it's remote opportunity or possibility for a judge not to include a conviction on the sex, the sex offender registry, but this one is getting a lot of attention, and many people will have thoughts on it. Even if you're not a lawyer, you don't have to be to chime in on matters of the courts, but that ruling not going over well, and let's stick with the courts for another one. I, we spoke about this program on this program, this particular strange old story. So there's this fella, his name is da, 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 Mr. Michel Thibodeau. He put forward a formal complaint under the Official Languages Act regarding the fact that at St. John's International Airport, they weren't operating in full in both English and French. So Mr. Thibodeau, who is what we refer to as a serial complainer, he has spent who knows how many hours and filed hundreds of complaints under the Official Languages Act, received thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in damages. Mr. Thibodeau had never set foot in St. John's International Airport, and so under the Act, as it's written, he was awarded the damages, but the St. John's International Airport says there's distinct errors in law, and they're appealing the decision. And of course, it would be quite onerous to have everything translated, not only for the travelers, but for potential travelers. Then there's some other nonsense about the uh, head office rule. Back in the 90s, the airport authority, when there was many government-operated airports privatized, the airport authority was granted an exemption from the head office rule. And that's all under a piece of legislation called the Airport Transfer Act. Adopted well back in the 90s. So, errors of law associated with St. John's International Airport. But just imagine having the time and the inclination to be sitting at home as a retired civil servant, to boot, filing hundreds of complaints like that. Anyway, they're appealing. Wish them good luck with it. Sticking with Ottawa, the organizers of the protests that were in Ottawa for some three weeks, they will be testifying in front of the committee. And, of course, the inquiry into the invocation of the Emergency Measures Act you want to tackle it? Let's do it. Quick note of congratulations before we get to your calls. 
So as I mentioned, it was Music NL celebrations last week on the West Coast in Cornerbrook with the big gala on Saturday night. There was five artists won two awards apiece, and there were Rachel Cousins, Nick Girl and the Reckless Hearts, Deantha Edmonds, Rosemary Lawton, and Florian Hefner. Two awards each is a nice take, so all the winners are listed. Congratulations to all the nominees. And, of course, the winners want to say a special shout-out to our very own Chris Batstone, who was the media person of the year. And, of course, he is a terrific broadcaster. He's the PA announcer down at Mary Brown Center for the Growler Games. He does voiceover work, and, of course, his rock briefs and the work he does on K-Rock is exemplary. Congratulations, Guido, or pardon me, to Chris Batstone. Well done. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Twitter's been the best. Boy, whoo. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show to kick off the week. That only works when you call. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Say good morning to Dr. Shannon Mackey. Dr. Mackey, you're on the air. Hello. Hello there. Hi. Hear me okay? I hear you just fine, sir. Go right ahead. What's on your mind? Hey, um, yeah, first time caller. Uh, used to listen to this program as a kid. Haven't haven't listened to it in a long time, though. Um, so, yeah, I'm a family doctor, and um, I'm frustrated, as you might expect, with the healthcare system. I don't think that comes as much of a surprise to people at all. Um, and I've had trouble voicing my concerns. Uh, it's hard to find somebody to listen. And I think ultimately the, the people that need to listen and the people that need to act to, to solve the problem are, are the public. Um, you, you know, we've been in a crisis. We say that we're in a crisis right now, but in fact, we've been in a crisis for a few decades. Um, and we've gone through multiple health ministers and premiers during that time. And the problem really hasn't been solved. And I, I think it's unrealistic to expect that the next person to come along is going to be the one to do it after several people have failed. I, I think it amounts to a job that's not doable by any person, really. Um, so I think the, the, the weight really comes down on us as people who need health care in the province to, to force these changes. Um, and so ideally, I'd like to make a couple of calls over the next few weeks to discuss a, set, a few separate issues. But my main concern is is that I've been experiencing myself a lot of frustration from patients. Patients uh, seem to uh, take their angers out on me, and uh, that sometimes even leads to me getting quite frustrated with patients. And the vast majority of the time, the reasons for these frustrations are systemic problems, problems that I can't fix and problems that the patient can't fix. Um, and problems that really the frustration should be directed at our leaders uh, and not on me. But the leaders are inaccessible, um, so the public can't complain directly to them. It usually falls to family doctors. Um, I just wanted to – I know I'm limited on time, so I just wanted no, to – Listen, this is one of the biggest issues that many people in the province are facing, so we can take our time and get through it. It's interesting, and it's kind of where I, my opinion would lie, too, is that this is not a new crisis. This has been a problem that's been brewing, maybe just maybe because of the pandemic has shone a very bright light on the healthcare system. But when we talk about a systemic problem, we also have to talk about any potential solutions. So family doctors would be uniquely qualified and positioned to talk about how we make the system more, more efficient, better, streamlined, open up more accessibility. So for the purpose of conversation... If you had George Ruthers and you had an opportunity to sit at the minister's desk, where do we start? Because they've tried a lot of stuff, collaborative care clinics and incentives for registered nurses to move from casual to permanent, uh, monies mm -hmm. to uh, attract doctors who are expats mm -hmm. back to the province. So where do we start? Because yeah. it seems money is not the answer. No, uh, money is not the answer, and I, I don't think... Um, 
uh, money has been tried over and over again, and and maybe it'll lead to a brief improvement because money can be used to recruit, uh, but it doesn't always retain. Um, and so it might be just sort of a Band-Aid solution, but in the end we're kind of stuck in the same situation. Um, I think that more important than money uh, is a working environment. Um, for example, right now I'm working in an environment that's completely overwhelmed. Um, uh, I can work as many hours a week as I want to, and I still have things to do weeks worth of things to do uh, and I have patients complaining to me nonstop uh, about these issues um, of course I'm not blaming the patients it's a systemic problem uh, it's just that it sort of comes down to me and uh, so I, I think that um, a couple of things can be done potentially to improve things in, in the long run but the most important thing by far I think is the use of technology um, so we've been focusing on recruiting more doctors, recruiting more healthcare professionals, and that's not worked well. Uh, instead, we have at our hands these days the sort of technologies that can partially re replace family doctors. I don't mean replace them, but can work with family doctors in order to streamline the processes that are needed to take care of patients. Um, there's many ways to do this, um, and some of these methods have partially been put into place in other provinces, um, such as using screening systems involving artificial intelligence to uh, collect uh, information from a patient prior to them seeing a doctor, things like that. Um, so these are some of the, you know, I, I think that's the main, the main thing that can be focused on. Um, most people don't have time for hearing for this solution at all. They, they don't think that it's a realistic solution. Um, they'd rather pursue a solution that's failed for 30 years um, than, than, than to do that. Uh, I myself have a, um, a, a, a company um, that specializes in uh, uh, medical uh, electronic uh, medical record software, and, and that could help a lot with, with that. Me, this company, plus many others that, that are around. Um, I, I just wanted to shed some light. That's not really my, my, my main talking point for today. I just wanted to, to, to uh, shed some light on a few questions that keep popping up from patients. Uh, patients become very frustrated, and often it's because they don't quite understand how the system works. Um, for example, uh, the average person doesn't know how much a doctor gets paid per visit, uh, um, if, I, if I ask them. A doctor gets paid somewhere around $35, upwards of maybe $45, depending on the patient's age, for a visit. If a doctor spends 15 minutes with the patient, or if a doctor spends 60 minutes with the patient, then the fee for that is the same. Uh, now, there are a few exceptions to that, but they're difficult to kind of uh, take advantage of. For the, mo for the most part, that's the case. Uh, I run a family practice with 2,200 patients, and many of them are very complex. And in order to do, uh, you know, a decent standard of care for them, um, it takes time. Um, and if I were to spend 45 minutes per patient, um, my clinic would close down pretty quickly. I wouldn't make enough money to stay open. So if I'm reading or hearing this correctly, the fee-for-service has long been put forward by physicians as a problem that can be solved. So is the solve there as simple as just having a contractual relationship with a set uh, salary for a doctor versus this fee-for-service and billing MCP the way we do? Right. So right now there is uh, you can either work fee-for-service or you can work as a salaried physician like through one of the health authorities. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and but those salary positions don't, frankly, don't pay a competitive amount. Um, so especially when you're 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 going to be very overworked. Um, so the fee for service system, I think, needs to be changed in some way to account for um, when you spend 45 minutes with a patient, um, then you should be compensated. Uh, appropriately, and 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 this is not about making a, a ton of money and living some rich lifestyle. Actually, it's about keeping my clinic afloat. <laughs> um, it, it, it's not as if I'm pulling home some huge amount of uh, um, of uh, expendable income or anything like that. I have friends who are doctors, and one of their things when we we, told, we do all these big catch-all phrases like work-life balance or what have you. More time seeing patients was by and large what doctors want to be doing. Surgeons want to be in the operating theater. OBGYNs want to be delivering babies. But so many doctors are bombarded with paper warfare. The amount of paperwork that goes into whether it be operating your clinic or working for the health authority. So what's been floated here recently is adding physician assistants to the uh, the rank of healthcare professionals in this province. Are things like that? helpful or are we just adding just another person to the system that might not make it necessarily better um, i'm not sure if i understood the end of your question man. okay so the minister uh, minister osborne said last week or the week before that they're looking at making physician assistants part of the healthcare uh, roster here in this province take on some of the administrative work do some of the simple stuff like uh, renewing prescriptions what have you versus all the time you would spend doing paperwork and seeing patients like like that who don't really need mm. to see a gp is that helpful Sorry, I misunderstood it. Yeah, so um, yeah, I think I, I, I'm I'm fully in support of physician assistants um, for sure. Um, there's a lot that they can do, and I've worked in places uh, in Ontario in uh, Northwest Territories where um, physician assistants are highly utilized and are very effective. Uh, so that's that's definitely an option. Um, the, the the downside, of course, is that um, that's going to cost money as well. <laughs> Um, and so, um, again, what a physician assistant would do is, is sort of uh, act as uh, a helper to, in a way to the family doctor uh, to speed things along. This is exactly what computer systems can do. Um, and, and this is my, one of my main frustrations. If you take, for example, um, um, Google, the search engine, you know, if, if, if you think about how many times you've used that search engine and how many times there's been a problem with it, like it wouldn't work or it took five minutes to load or, um, you know, any issue with it, basically, that would slow you down. Um, well, the current uh, systems we have in place have these problems constantly. Um, there is a all patient that data is kept in a system called Healthy NL, which is owned by a New Zealand company uh, called Orion Health for some reason. Um, and um, it's a very um, finicky system. It, it often won't load. Um, usually you wait two minutes after you click a button to see a result. Um, time is being wasted. Um, I, I wouldn't count up how many hours a day. In a, in a 10 hour, maybe an hour or two is being wasted at this. Um, so my question is that why is it that a provincial government with the resources that we have uh, can't afford uh, a quality of computer system that you would buy for two ninety nine on your on your Google Play? Uh, it's a big issue. I've talked to the Center for Health Information about this. Um, I've tried to uh, offer my assistance in 
uh, accessing this database and making things quicker, but uh, they had no interest in that whatsoever. Um, I tried contacting uh, Minister Osborne as well uh, and did not receive a, a response. It's all quite confusing when we talk about tech because, you know, healthcare still uses the fax machine. Then we had the cyber attack at the Meditech system. And now we have a confusion with the electronic medical records that you described here this morning. So obviously, we have to do much better there. And there are all sorts of solutions that are available, whether we're talking healthcare or otherwise, with the implementation of real, adequate tech. Uh, I, I didn't know about the delay in the system that you point out this morning, Dr. Mackey, but that's why it's helpful to have people who actually work in the system talk about it. Uh, any more, any further points you'd like to make this morning before we take another call? Uh, yeah, just just very quickly. I'll just give like a, a case in point example, very vaguely, of course, for confidentiality reasons. A patient who... Um, you know, is, is living in a situation where it's a bit difficult for them to um, take care of themselves um, and need specialist care from multiple specialists. The specialist can only see them about once a year, and so all of their complex care uh, falls to me, and uh, I have limited time with my huge page patient load. Uh, the patient has to wait for six months or a year to get a simple test done, such as an echocardiogram. Um, even an ultrasound takes six months or so to get a non-urgent one. This is a test that's often done at the bedside during the initial appointment in many provinces. Um, it, it's unheard of for somebody to have to wait for blood work. Normally, you would just go to the lab and get your blood work done. When I first started working here just over a year ago and found out that it took two or three weeks to get a blood work example or a blood work sample, uh, it, it blew my mind. Um, so, I mean, this is just some kind of numbers. I think everybody is aware that there's a big slowdown. But just to give some people the, uh, the you know, idea of the extent of it, um, uh, neurology is, ex- is essentially inaccessible. Uh, psychiatry is inaccessible. Um, I would say the psychiatry services, other than their emergency services, which are extremely important, are otherwise useless. I, I'm unable to refer a person to psychiatry. My success rate in doing that is about 5%. I've become a psychiatrist myself because I've been forced to deal with it all. So these are just some of the issues. And again, to bring back to the point I made at the beginning, I think this is not going to change unless we rise up as a population and demand in some way that this be fixed in a way that's forceful enough that they have no choice but to do something about it. And then you mentioned psychiatrists, and added to the fact that there's a 45% vacancy of psychologists inside of Eastern Health, which is just mind-boggling. Add that to the family doctor issue, and we've got ourselves a real perfect storm of shortages and stress. I uh, really appreciate your time and your perspective, Dr. Mackey. You're welcome back at your convenience. Sure, yeah. If I could just make one, one further point of what you mentioned there about psychologists. Psychologists are actually very easily accessible if you have money. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's one example of a two-tier system we have, and it may be actually a reason why people, you know, people in power, elites, aren't really uh, too concerned about fixing the problem because at the end of the day, ultimately, they can get health care. Good to have you on, sir. I'll welcome you back. Right. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. Okay. Right. Dr. Shannon Mackey is a family doctor describing... What's going on in their world? So if you'd like to pick up on anything that uh, Dr. Mackey had to say, and of course to bring up a topic of your choosing, you can do it right after this. Ed's in the queue to talk about hydro. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. 
And welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Ed. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, very interesting call you just had there from uh, Dr. Mackey. Uh, nice. <laughs> I'm not uh, a doctor by any means, but I can certainly relate to some of the uh, comments that he made and the problems in the system. Uh, however, that's not the reason why I called. I I just want to make a couple of quick comments on uh, some of the recent happenings at uh, uh, Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, I guess. Okay. Uh, I uh, I followed the uh, inquiry into Muskrat Falls quite quite uh, carefully, and I've read most of the report and uh, some of the information that uh, that came out in that uh, inquiry is astounding, and some of the uh, decision making and some of the withholding of information. And some of the, uh, what I would say, looking after your buddies kind of thing that went on there to the tune of uh, $13 million is, is just astounding. And it seems like, if I my memory serves me correctly, the architects of all this uh, are being very handsomely rewarded for... Uh, uh, for this mess that has been uh, probably could bankrupt the province, I suppose, if the federal government doesn't uh, doesn't step in uh, and and bail us out once again. But I mean, we start with uh, uh, Ed Martin, who I believe he walked out the door with a four million dollar uh, paycheck in his pocket after being in charge of this. Then we have other uh, executives who were involved through Hydro and came out quite clearly in the uh, in the inquiry that they were front and center in some of the things that shouldn't have gone on. And uh, uh, they've moved into uh, other plum government jobs with huge salaries. You're right. And now, and now the latest is uh, Gilbert Bennett, who just walked away with, uh, well, the better part of a million dollars, as I understand. And and absolutely, I would like Paul Lane said, absolutely no one has been held accountable for any of the the failures and the mismanagement and any other term you want for this Muskrat Falls fiasco. And I just like to know when it's going to end. When someone is going to, within, it has to happen at a government level, when someone is going to take that corporation and, and, and do something to clean it up. Because... Okay, uh, so all fair points you make here this morning. Uh, you know, some of the notables, like I, I think you're referring to Charles Bowne, who was named many, many times during the LeBlanc inquiry. He's moved off to run the MMSB, the Multi-Material Stewardship Board. Didn't go okay. anywhere. Gilbert Bennett, of course, was at the helm of the Muskrat Falls Project since day number one. Even some of the comments coming from uh, Justice LeBlanc that he took unprincipled steps pre-sanction. There was many, many emails between members at NALCOR and the 
province where, oh, pardon me, in-house emails at Nalcor, people saying, do not disclose this piece of information or that piece of information to the minister of the day and or the cabinet, which is just galling. It's unbelievable that those things happened. So you say something has to happen at the government level. It looks like Miss Williams, Jennifer Williams, seems to be taking some steps in the right direction. You know, half the number of executives did away with any compensation for bonuses, with bonuses and what have you. So some things are happening. But what happened in the past has not been dealt with very clearly, if at all. So I know we had contractual relationships with both uh, Bennett and Martin, and the payout was going to be the way it was, and if we didn't pay him, they were going to sue us. I get all of that stuff. But LeBlanc, the way he puts it, and I've actually asked Minister Hogan on this program about the status of some of these allegations and any potential pending criminal investigations. Some of this might be civil matters that people might take up, but some of them might be criminal matters. I'd like to know, too. Yes, uh, you're exactly right, Patty. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of uh, people in the province would like to know. Because it, it's even not like, well, this was a big project, poorly managed. It's not even finished. We have a, a, a line coming down from Muskrat Falls that can't be relied upon. And I mean, one of the justifications that was used uh, during the uh, infancy of this project was, well, hydro, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, generating plant at Holyrood is going to be shut down, so we're going to save oodles and oodles of money on the oil that we won't need to purchase. Now we find out that not only is that not going to close, it's probably going to have to be expanded, and so is uh, has been announced so have, is the, the beta spare operation has to be uh, increased or expanded because we can't rely on, on uh, Muskrat Falls. Yeah, it's, it's something else. So It is, it is mind-boggling, Patty, absolutely mind-boggling. And people, in my opinion, I know I understand what you just said about contractual relationships and all of that and, and uh, the things probably that, uh, they can't uh, not do, but still, I mean, the way this all unfolded and went down, somebody should be behind bars, and that might be a bit harsh in saying that. But uh, I, I'm telling you, this is uh, this is uh, going to go down in the history books. Uh, Churchill Falls, the original Churchill Falls deal, is going to look like a a birthday party. Can, to when uh, the final report is written on Muskrat Falls, uh, I just uh, it just blows me away. The beta spare announcement was five hundred twenty-two million dollars for adding the eighth generating unit, and when you mention Hollywood, bring that five twenty-two to a billion, because by the time it's maintained and operated and purchasing that whatever bunker C or whatever uh, product they use to generate electricity, that 522 was absolutely a billion dollars. Add to it, we just had the first of two reports coming from the Auditor General about Muskrat Falls and the operations. There's no longer Nalcor. It's all Newfoundland, Labrador, Hydro. Now, fine. And the big one that jumped off of that page to me was at one point we had in excess of 500 embedded contractors. Why weren't some of these people brought into the fold, made employees, save us a bit of money? It's all just infuriating when you stand back and add up all the different moving pieces and just look at where we are now. Yeah. The, the schedule obliterated, the budget obliterated, who knows where it ends. You know, the last update we had is $13.1 billion, I believe. It's absolutely going to be more than that. And we still can't even flow the power. So, Ed, your frustrations yeah. are widespread, I would think. 
Yes, and and uh, we can talk about the project uh, in general terms and throw around billion-dollar figures. But, I mean, all this is going to boil down. All this eventually comes back to a poor senior citizen who can't afford to uh, turn on the heat in their home or their apartment because the electricity rates are so high, uh, which they haven't gone up significantly yet. But I don't think that we can count on, on them not going up because, I mean, this this is just never going to end. Uh, it's never going to end. And I, I worry... Uh, about where our liability could come in uh, with this line, which is not only bringing power down uh, to the island, it's also uh, being sent to Nova Scotia through the agreement with uh, with Amira or their energy uh, company. Yeah. Uh, I mean, do we have uh, liability if this line should happen to fall down in the wintertime, and uh, we can't supply them with electricity. I mean, where, where does this end? Well, where does I, it end? if we have some sort of storm that knocks out transmission, I don't know how much liability will be there. We're already flowing power across both ways on the maritime link, but it's a fair question about our relationship with the Mara and Nova Scotia Power. I don't know. It's a bit of a mess, Ed. You know, and this is the stuff that gets my head spinning here on a Monday morning. I'll give you the last word, sir, before we say goodbye. Yes, uh, okay, I won't take any more of your time. Uh, no I do agree that uh, Jennifer Williams was a, an excellent choice to bring in as the, the head of, uh, of uh, Hydro, and I'm sure that she's doing what she can. But I, I kind of figure uh, that her hands are tied to some extent uh, because of the... Uh, the, the relationship or the ownership, if you will, with the provincial government. And uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I still think that uh, some of this stuff is, is not being, uh, no one is being held accountable because it looks bad politically. And unfortunately uh, for, for the province and the people, everything boils down uh, to uh, what's going to get me a vote and what's going to lose me a vote. So uh, I uh, I hope and pray that Jennifer Williams uh, continues on the path, and I hope she's not hampered too much by uh, by government uh, politics. And uh, thank you very much, Patty, for taking my call, and uh, all the best. Same to you, Ed. Thanks a lot. Okay, Ed. Bye bye. All right, uh, let's get to the break. When we come back, there's a Provincial Day of Action being organized by the Canadian Federation of Students. We'll find out what that's all about right after this. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the chair of the Canadian Federation of Students, Newfoundland and Labrador, Gayapri Murugan. Uh, good morning, Gayapri. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm not doing too bad. Right off the bat, how did I do with the pronunciation? Not too bad. Um, it's actually Gayapri Murugan. Close enough. Close enough. Gayapri Gaia Murugan. Gayapri. Gayapri. Yes. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, what's going on with this Provincial Day of Action? So, this November the 2nd, students all across the province, post-secondary students all across the province, are going all out to protest the tuition hikes across the province, as well as the cuts to funding by the government. Um, we want the tuition freeze to be implemented again 
and um, I can tell you a bit more about what's happening where. Sure. Before we get into the the nitty gritty of how and why, how and where it's going to happen, but the tuition freeze. Let me just see if I can put this away to get a get your thoughts. Okay. So the tuition freeze was in place for a couple of decades, and because of it. As opposed to incremental changes to the uh, tuition, as opposed to jacking up student fees, which you don't get a tax break on, we arrived at this point where all of a sudden when the freeze went away, the tuition increase was massive. So is the tuition freeze the right idea, or should we be talking more pragmatically about small incremental uh, changes year to year or every couple of years? Because that's exactly how we got to where we are with the tuition freeze. Well, that is true. However, um, if you read the reports, um, the province is trying to pass off about a third of their deficit to on the backs of students, which isn't sustainable. It's a very short-sighted decision, and students can't pay that. And I think instead of cutting funding to education, the government should be putting more money back into the education system so that more people can access a post-secondary education. Yeah, I mean, the government did, I suppose. And you're right, we're talking about 67 or $68 million less money going to the university this year. Yeah. Um, so... How do we approach this as a big picture issue? I get where you're coming from because the province had put forward some grants for low-income earners to be able to access an education, and I do firmly believe access to post-secondary, whether it be vocational schools, uh, the College of North Atlantic, Memorial University, Marine Institute is extremely important for our future. How do we look at big picture stuff at MUN when we talk, add in things like infrastructure deficit, those types of expenses which are not really... Uh, they're not as sexy as tuition conversations because unless you go to the school, you don't see the disrepair. You don't understand the shortcomings of infrastructure. So how do we look at all of this in the one big picture to talk about money as a catch-all as opposed to it only, only impacts tuition or only impacts fees, only impacts accessibility and or infrastructure? Because they're all part of the conversation, aren't they? Yes, of course. Um, and this isn't just for MUN, right? So this is also for the college students. Um, for example, let's say um, infrastructure, like you mentioned, is, is not doing great, especially we're in St. John's. Um, if you've been inside the MUN tunnel, you'll see it's, it's not a good situation. Um, transportation, sure, in the metro area, it's great. But at the, in the rest of the province, it's not the best. Students who don't have a car find it hard to get to and from campus and classes, which is not helpful for a lot of people. And um, housing is a major issue, I'm sure, as you know. It's a major issue all across the province, but especially for students who don't have that much money, who are trying to find an affordable place to live, just trying to get a degree. There's no places to live. There's no affordable places to live. Something like rent control would really, really help, I think, with that. It's such a big conversation. Now, I'm happy to talk about things like convocation ceremonies and the O to Newfoundland, but the, con- the issues that we're broaching here today, just in my personal opinion, are of way more importance than the O, even though I'm not saying people can't call on that issue. But we've got accessibility and tuition costs and infrastructure deficits that really should be dominating the post-secondary conversation here in the province. So I'm glad we're having it this morning, Guy 3. So uh, give us some of the details, the moving parts, where, when, what's happening on this Provincial Day of Action on the 2nd of November. Of course, Patty. Thank you very much. 
So this November the 2nd, so this coming Wednesday, we are having a provincial day of action protesting tuition hikes at CNA and MUN. On uh, Wednesday at St. John's MUN campus, students from MUN, CNA, the Marine Institute, um, and the graduate students are going to be gathering at the clock tower to march to the Confederation building at 11 a.m. In Cornerbrook, students at the Grenfell campus will be gathering in the main atrium at 10 a.m. and marching to the Sir Richard Squires building at 10.30 a.m. I appreciate you making time for the program, and we can have a uh, after-the-fact conversation once the Provincial Day of Action comes and goes. Maybe touch base next week and let us know about what happened, what the turnout was like, what sort of reception you got from government uh, officials. So thank you for calling this morning, Guy, Guy 3. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. And, yeah, um, if you want more information, anybody who's listening, please go on social media, look up the Canadian Federation of Students, Newfoundland and Labrador. And if you're listening and if you want to get involved, feel free to send me an email at chair at cfs-nl.ca. Thanks for this. Take good care. Thanks. Bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. That's Guy 3 Murugan, who's the chair of the Canadian Federation of Students of Newfoundland and Labrador. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Let's take a break. When we go back, there's a caller in the queue who wants to talk about the doctor shortages as broached with Dr. Shannon Mackey to kick off the show. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing very well, thanks. How about you? Good. I just wanted to respond to that comment that Dr. raised here at the start of your program. Okay. Now, he was in, I think he's, I'm not sure where he's at in Newfoundland. I assume he's in St. John somewhere? It was a local number. Yeah, maybe I should have asked okay. him. I didn't didn't cross my mind. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah, I live in Ontario, and uh, if you want an echocardiogram here, you can get one but a week and a half versus the six months he was talking about. So, uh it's quite the difference. It is. I mean, I'm waiting for a procedure, and I've got, uh, let's see, the appointment was booked, I'll say, a month ago, and it's not until March. It's unreal. It is. And, you know, the biggest problem with that is not just the frustration or the anxiety for the patient and their family. It's the potential for the symptoms to become much more acute and much more serious before you actually get diagnosed, first or last. So, I mean, this snowballs into a much bigger affair than simply how many months or weeks you have to wait for anything, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I think part of the problem is that those who are running the healthcare system are running it for healthcare professionals and not for the population of the province. What do you mean by that? Because sometimes I look around and I think there's a lot of territorial, what's the right word? People are stamping out their territory and don't want any other healthcare professional to be part of sharing some of the workload, you know, so that it may indeed reduce their billing, when in fact, that's not my worry. That's not anybody's I, worry. That's I only healthcare you. professionals' worry. That's, you know, the population needs to be served by whoever's got the license and the accreditation to do X, Y, or Z. Not just, remember, well, I've got to see a doctor. I hear you. Remember a few months ago, there was a doctor from, I think, from Massachusetts wanted to come to Newfoundland for free, and they told him he he wasn't uh, eligible to practice in the province? I do. There's a little bit more to that story. Uh, so this is a guy who was actually part of Mun's first graduating class at the medical school, f- some 50 years in the business. He hadn't been practicing face-to-face. He had been offering virtual care. That seemed to be the hiccup because the yeah. college is trying to have it both ways here. 
encourage me yeah, to use virtual care, but that doesn't count for actual doctors <laughs> working. So I don't get that. But the part of the story that was not told wide and far is that there's a checklist of things that doctors have to do. A variety of things, not just about licensing and some of the paperwork they mm-hmm. have to do. Mm-hmm. There's criminal background checks and things. So the doctor was unwilling to do all of them. Consequently, he kind of removed himself from the equation. You know, I think it just played into the hands of the establishment. I think what your province has to do, and I'm originally from Newfoundland, I think you have to do the same thing that Tommy Douglas done in the 1960s in Saskatchewan, and that's take health care away from the medical establishment to get rid of the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Board. You even look in that province in Newfoundland. I've gone to mine. I left there many years ago. Whoever gets into med school, they're either the son or daughter of a doctor or they're one of their parents is either a principal or a superintendent of the school board. It's comical to look at from a distance. Yeah, there's some 65 seats for Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. The competition to get into that school is absolutely wicked. One of my siblings uh, tried to get in a couple of times, and I can tell you, not because they're my, my relative, but super slick, smart as a whip, and would have mm-hmm. been a terrific healthcare professional. Went on to law school eventually when it was like, geez, how come I can't get into this school? You know, I've got the top marks coming out of my high school and all the other extracurriculars. All those boxes were checked, but yet, nope, no luck. It's a matter of who you know. I mean, this has come up in the House of Assembly in the 1980s. I think it was Glenn Tobin that raised it back then. And nothing has changed. So you need to reform the actual administration of your healthcare system. And I think the worst mistake you made in Newfoundland was putting a premier in charge, putting a doctor in charge as premier. All right. It's get, if anything, it's getting worse. It's not getting better. Well, okay. I mean, on that point, and I think Dr. Mackey made the point that is patently clear is that this is not something that just reared its ugly head in the last couple of years. This has been going on for a long time. I think we talk more about it now because we saw so many delays because of the pandemic. Whether or not they were required is a a conversation we can certainly have. But this is not new. This has been happening. Like, I haven't had a family doctor for 20 years. I hear you, but then again, the pandemic in Newfoundland compared to many other places in Canada was very was very minimal. Oh, absolutely. We may have overprepared insofar as protecting the system. Yeah, that that's a fair point. Yeah. So, I mean, you need to shake your establishment and see what happens. Nothing wrong with giving yeah. things a good shake. I hear you, sir. Okay, good luck to you. Thanks for this. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, uh, there's a lot to the healthcare conversation. I do absolutely believe that the health accord was required body of work. How it's going to uh, see the transition through is all a big 10-year question. It's the immediacy that many people obviously would be more worried about. Uh, let's go to line number three. Charlie, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Morning good conversations you. there. Yeah, not bad. Patty, a couple of things that uh, I guess it's appropriate on Halloween to, to, to uh, tell you a couple of these, these little stories very quickly. Fire. Uh, Ed Smith wrote an article one time in the fall, and uh, he talked about an experience uh, him and his buddy had when they were young. They were coming home from some uh, uh, function, and it was getting around dark, and they were getting lightning and flashes of... uh, They looked up on uh, the rise, or one of them did, and up up on this hilly rise where there was no roads or anything... They saw this uh, this object, a man on a horse. <laughs> this is his story, you know. And uh, they were they were quite scared. They <laughs> as they would be. They ran home. I think they were around sixteen, seventeen. 
years later, they met at a graduation uh, re- reunion, high school re- reunion. So he went along to the guy and said, uh, what do you think about uh, that thing that happened to us? And he said, uh, that thing has never left my mind. He said, and, and it did it. They confirmed to each other that, that they weren't seeing things. So I, I, I was corresponding with it. So after I saw that story in the Telegram, I, I emailed them and uh, I said, that was a great story. Uh, uh, do you have any comment on it? Uh, because uh, for Halloween, he said, he wrote back, he said, that actually happened, Charlie. That was, that was, uh, there was no doubt about it. We both saw the same thing. And uh, I don't know what else to say about it. He asked me for my opinion on it at the time. I, I sent him off something on it. And uh, still on that uh, line, Anthony Bourdain, uh, the guy who committed suicide, I guess a lot of people followed him. I, I know I did. Mm-hmm. Four years ago, I just finished a book down and out in paradise. And the writer is a type that uh, we would follow people uh, where they were in that uh, to to get a better idea of who they saw and what they were all about. And he visited the room where Bourdain committed suicide. He said, I went in the room, it was his last paragraph almost in, in, in the book, it was understated, he wasn't trying to sell books. I went in the room and he said there was a sliding closet door. That proceeded to move toward me at very high speed, such that it lurched off its uh, its moorings, its rollers, and it came to rest uh, right where I was. And I said, he, that's basically all he said. And his comment was, I don't know if it was an act of aggression or if it was a hug, because he knew Bourdain very well, right? So th- those two stories, I guess, illustrate something. Science can never measure this. We can never come up with rational explanations. We can put it in the lab. But that doesn't mean uh, that some of these things don't exist. Do you have any comments? Well, look, there's all kinds of spooky stories or uh, bizarre encounters that people will report. I've had a couple where I've kind of questioned myself as to what is going on here. And a couple of good frights associated with it, too. A very quick one for me is when working at the Jasper Park Lodge, the two most prestigious cabins, Outlook and Point. Point Cabin is a place where there was a chambermaid. Actually, I believe she was a seamstress, in-house seamstress, working in the very top, uh, what do you call the the top, the, the, what's the, the uh, in your home, the top above your ceiling is the, Attic. attic. She was working up in the attic and apparently had a fall and died. And there was countless uh, encounters where people said they saw someone up in that particular window to go in and investigate to find nobody. I was vacuuming in the golf clubhouse one night about midnight, and I went out to the vehicle to get something to come back in and finish my vacuuming. I had the vacuum in the middle of the room and still plugged in. And when when I went back in, and I'm talking 30 seconds later, no one else in the building, as far as I could tell, maybe someone pranked me, but the vacuum was on its back and the cord wrapped around it as if someone was trying to hogtie a calf. So I was like, uh-oh, that's it. No more vacuuming for me tonight. Well, <laughs> there's literally uh, uh, millions of, of, of similar stories and poltergeists and that that have been well documented and so on. Again, people dismiss it that if it hasn't happened to, to them. I've, I've got a story I won't, I, I won't tell now. It's a short one, uh, uh, but I'd suggest listeners to Google uh, disappearing objects. You'll be surprised at what you find. Anyway, that's my Halloween contribution. Okay, I'll take it. Uh, two, two, two little topics. Uh, that caller you had on early expressing his dismay at what, what happened with Muskrat and, and the people that were kept on and so on. 
Uh, it boggles my mind that uh, after the report came out uh, on Muscat Falls, what was the name of it again? Uh, the LeBlanc Inquiry? Yes, yes. They basically said uh, two or three people they singled out for uh, uh, distorting things, incompetence, and so on. And uh, one of them, uh, Gilbert Bennett, was kept on when Stan Marshall came on a big salary. He was kept on when they uh, amalgamated, uh, was drawn into an Alcor. And finally, now we see he was re- released with his million-dollar uh, handshake. Uh, to, to see that guy uh, who, who was, who was uh, denounced by that committee, kept on twice, and now to depart with uh, its rewarding incompetence and some things that are worse than incompetence. And I think a lot of people are pretty flabbergasted about about that kind of system, you know. Yeah, and, I, you know, I get uh, taken to task when I make any mention of the fact that he had a contract in place, but that's part of it, you know, it really is. But people might not want to hear that, but I guarantee you, if we didn't abide by the contract, all we'd end up doing is costing us more to go to court and end up paying it anyway. So, But it is galling. It's the salt in the wound that I think infuriates everybody. Well, they said his job was done. I, I guess they mean his job of messing up us for... Uh for decades to come financially and so on, and leaving us with that with that disaster. But anyway, the last thing I want to mention, I heard somebody say the weekend, they were talking about our neighbor to the south, and they said, you know, they talk about a civil war happening, and we always think of a civil war as two armies uh, that are in the same country uh, fighting each other about some cause. Uh, they said, a civil war is basically on. You've got two tribes who hate each other. They don't listen to each other. You've got uh, violence, uh, like w- what happened to, uh, to, to, to Pelosi's husband, going on daily. And they said the civil war, with ideas and with violence, is really on down there now. That's the kind of a civil war it's going to be. And, of course, it will get worse with, uh, with that uh, orange man still around. But anyway, that's, that's my comment on that. I try to avoid American politics at uh, every turn, but it's uh, virtually impossible. And it does have an impact on life in Canada, regardless of what anybody thinks. Societal issues, political issues, trade issues, monetary issues, there's a big overlap between us two countries. And so that's the reality. And I I had to tune out the Pelosi story over the weekend. It just became so bizarre so quickly that it's mind-boggling just how polarized that country is we can't allow it to happen here it already is in some form fashion but we've got to avoid it at all costs it's bad for everybody no matter who you cheer for no matter which way you lean politically it's bad period charlie i gotta get off to the break anything else quick before i say goodbye just very quickly elon musk actually uh taking over twitter actually used twitter to uh, send uh, in a message uh, repeating a conspiracy theory, basically, that it was a setup on that to help the Democrats in the election. He took it off later, but the fact that he put that up there, that Elon Musk has done a lot of good things, but by God, uh, he's, uh, he, he's starting to be a wacko, in my opinion, but anyway. I'll just call him a strange person and leave it at that. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Charlie. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, break time. When we come back, uh, Mark's here to talk about rent and the cost of, and John wants to talk about the fact that for the second time this year, we had to close the Outer Ring Road to clean it up again. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line number four. John, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks. You? Not too bad. Uh, I called about another mess on the Outer Ring Road again yesterday. Yep. You know, uh, 
it's time for the city or someone to uh, put some kind of control on these trucks going to the city dump. I'm down there probably a dozen times a week when they bring no cars and stuff down there. And I mean, we bring a car down there. It was all hanging apart. We got to put a net over it for safety reasons, you know. But I mean, I was down there, I think it was last Tuesday or Wednesday. I mean, there was roughly 10 pickup trucks or cars or whatever with trailers on them. Maybe five of them had their garbage tapped up. You know, it's time for the city. I mean, you got people working there telling you where to go to garbage. You pull in there and you got a load of garbage not tarped and it doesn't look safe. Get these guys, take a picture, take a plate number, and then send it to the proper authorities. Because, I mean, how many how many thousands of dollars does it cost us to keep that road clean? It's completely unnecessary. And, look, I don't know how easy the solution would be to adopt, but can it not be possible that it be part of the city bylaws? And so even just not take a picture, have it someone who's on staff that's part of their job is to look at the loads as they come in. If it's deemed to be unsecure, maybe document it with a picture, but give the person a ticket right there and then. Like, that's right. Give them a ticket right there and then. See, the thing is, it's already for the city because the city got control of the dump, which they wanted for years, and garbage comes right in from God, everywhere, all over, the halfways over the island, basically, or from Clarendale Lane, which I don't have a problem with that. But, I mean, there's garbage everywhere. Not only the Ring Road, all, all over the highways everywhere. There's garbage trucks coming in. The tarps are all ragged out. I mean, you know, it's time to put some kind of control in. I mean, that road was closed again yesterday. I mean, you look at the traffic was on Kemet Road and Alton Town yesterday. It was crazy. Yep. You know, and, and how much did it cost? I heard it was like probably about $80,000 again yesterday to clean this up. So, I mean, it's okay for the city because the garbage is going down there, but the provincial government's paying for it. I mean, if the city got control of the dump, maybe things... We'd be different too if they actually had to pay for the cleanup on the outer ring road every year. Maybe then they'd say, hold on now, boss, you know, we're paying out a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. It's time for us to put control on this. If you got control of the dump, take control of the highway too. Yeah, but uh, uh, sure, that would, uh, that would require the RNC. For me, is if you're heading to the dump and we can get you with your own secure load at the dump and the city manages the dump, let's make it part of the city bylaws that the ticket's written by the city right there at the dump so we don't have to worry about the RNC and patrols and yep. other things the police can be doing. Because I'd add Logie Bay Road to it as well. I had to go to the dump, uh, I'm going to say a couple of weeks ago. And the fellow in front of me, he was obviously going the exact same way because the truck was absolutely bogged down, loaded. Hit one of the notorious bumps in our little uh, path between my home and the dump itself. And bang, out bounced whatever it was. It was a metal something or other. I couldn't determine what it was. But I was lucky just to miss it. Yeah, I mean, uh, you, want, you know yourself, the mattress on the outer ring road. Oh, yeah. Chesterfield, I mean, and most of the time, most of these people lose them. They're going to keep going because they're afraid to stop and pick it up because if you do, the proper authorities may come along and say, hold on now, you lost that Chesterfield. They're <laughs> yeah. going to give you a fine. So they're going to say, well, listen, I'll take my chance. I didn't see it fall out, so the hell with it, you know. And, I mean, it's too late. I mean, how many close accidents or how many accidents are after having on the highway because of someone lose a chair or a couch or a bed or something, you know, out of it. Yeah. You know, and not only is it's a non-godly mess up there. It's not fit. It's terrible, and I tell the story all the time. I This is a number of years ago now, picking up my buddies at the airport. The first thing that anyone said when we got out of the airport uh, complex and onto the uh, highway there is, my God, look at the garbage, and I was embarrassed to tears. Yeah, it's probably one of the dirtiest highways around. I mean, St. John's, I mean, was a beautiful city years ago, but being clean, it's still a nice place. I mean, but, I mean, still, it seems like people just don't care. They just throw the garbage wherever they feel like it. Yeah. It's time. Some, it's, we need, like you said, we need a bylaw to... I mean, clean this up, you know. Right at the dump site. That's uh, I should ask the mayor about 
whether or not that's actually feasible or if it all falls inside the uh, auspices of the RNC, I don't know. But I do get frustrated with these heavy price tags on these unbelievable cleanups that are required. We've got no choice, but it's uh, we should be avoiding it more so than yeah. worrying about cleaning it up. Yep. I heard the dollar figure yesterday was probably roughly about $80,000. Oh, yeah, it cost something. That's for bloody well, sure. <laughs> John, thanks for this. Yep, take care. Okay. All the best. Bye-bye. Uh, Mark, for the break, Dave, yes, uh, he's been waiting. Mark on one, you're on the air. Good morning, Good morning Gary. Uh, how are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How you doing? Yes, yes. I just wanted to make a little short story on the cost of living and the rent there going up and stuff in the St. John's area. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, I'm not going to say exactly where I'm renting, of course. I'm renting on the apartment building, um, subsidized by Newfoundland Urban Housing. Uh, but uh, just want to make it a uh, brief mention that the, the place I'm renting off of, housing is given there as a portion, I'm renting off, whatever. But, um, you know, I know I'm a low income family person, just a single person living by myself. Certainly, barely getting enough to feed myself and pay my bills, or you know, nothing, there's nothing included where I'm living, renting to. And uh, it seems like every year, like, I mean, you know, where I'm renting off, but the rent is going up $25 every year. And the, uh, you know, when I moved in first, I mean, I know yes, things or whatever the year, the year, you know, when I moved in first, like 600 now, like, uh, coming February, the first will be 850. Uh, it's a big jump. I mean, the use thing is like, it's, place of renting off, you go like 5 and 10 or 15 or 20. This year it seems to be 25 to 40. So as of February the 1st, now I'll be paying uh, 850. I just think it's a bit, a bit much myself and there's nothing included and you know, and you know, they, I mean, every time they, they, they do something they punish the tenants for what they're you know, for the rent part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, you know, it's sad actually you know, for a low-income person to uh, be almost like subsidized, but the other landlords are basically, I'll call them, tend to say gouging. They're gouging people for the difference of it. I mean, you know, like I said, I mean, you want a bit of paint done, they won't do that. Or the, or the grass got to be done, they got to do that. You know what I mean? It's just, it's sad, actually. I mean, it's, it's sad. I, and I wish, I wish the way that wasn't like that. It, the building itself, it's not worth the 850. And like I said, a person like myself, you know, I can barely go to the supermarket and barely afford to live, barely afford to pay a light bill, I mean, and then, of course, you're down to the full banks, and then they use your hardly need it. There's one of the uh, issues that we don't talk about when we hear the Bank of Canada and their rate hikes is it's one thing for people's own personal debt load, but if you're a renter, guaranteed the person who owns the pro- the property has a mortgage on it, because that just makes sense to actually have a mortgage on it, even though that sounds a bit strange. And so... They're going to pass along whatever increase to their mortgage is to their renters. They're, that's just going to happen. So that's one of the issues that I don't think gets many of the headlines when we talk about the Bank of Canada and inflation and what have you. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's just not right, though. It's just shocking, I think, yourself, though, you know, to be nabbing and gouging people. Like, you know, like, you know it's, not, it's a bit much, I think, yourself, though. I don't know how people make ends meet. I just don't I, know. No, well, that, well, you know something? Well, that's what I'm saying. That's the whole point of what I'm getting at. I mean, I don't know how they're doing it myself. I mean, they're struggling, like I said. Right? You know, I mean, you know, I don't know. It's just ridiculous. It's, it's I don't know. That it is. Listen, hang in there, Mark. I'm glad you made time for the show this morning. Wish you well. Thank you, much, Brady. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, it's uh, something else going on out there. All right, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Gail wants to talk about nurses and their work-life balance, maybe more to it. Then we're going to talk about Neighborhood Watch. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. 
Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Gail, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. I just wanted to comment on the nurses, union and the nurses. Sure. Uh, I uh, I feel that the nurses are overworked and underpaid in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. I think that they uh, should be paid equivalent to every other province. Their work is like equivalent to everyone else, in my opinion. Uh, I feel that they uh, they should be uh, paid more money. The government should pay them equivalent to what everyone else is getting. They're certainly overworked. I think everyone would agree with that. The pay issue for me becomes a little bit more confusing, Gail. Just look at the the fact that the uh, just how many nurses are on the casual list and not full-time permanent. And mm-hmm. the government offered them a pretty significant chunk of money and, and other supports to move on to full-time permanent, and they wouldn't take it. You know, okay. so many of them were just leaving it on the table. So I think if we ask, well, of course, every individual will have a different answer. For some people, money is the be-all and end-all. But for others, is that they're just burnt to a crisp. So would they be any less burnt for more money? Probably not. Would it make it easier to get up and go to work feeling that way? Probably. So I don't know where the answer lies, to be honest. No, I wasn't aware of the fact that they were offered more money. (laughs) Yeah, $3,000 as a signing bonus, we'll call it. Then there was uh, other issues regarding child care, mental health supports, and mm. other things. But 3000 bucks if you just uh, moved on to the permanent full-time list. And my understanding is very few took it. Okay. Yeah, interesting, yeah. eh? I do have friends that have to work two 12-hour shifts, sometimes three, but yeah. a break. And, you know, it's just terrible. It is. Uh, I have nurses who are friends of mine and friends of the family, and... They're reporting very similar work experiences. There Mm. was a nurse that I don't really know personally. She's a friend of my wife, and she just said enough is enough. She had been nursing for, I think, was 18 or 19 years. She just quit and found something else to do. She couldn't handle it anymore. Oh, yeah. Well, I had a sister that did uh, half century. (laughs) She worked 50 years, and then she retired. Wow. Mm. 50 years is a long haul in that profession. Yeah. Yeah, my mom was a registered nurse, too. Okay. Yeah. She probably she knew my sister. You never know. <laughs> she just might. Yeah. Mm. She was a St. Clair's girl. Uh, that's where she did her nurse schooling. Okay. And then worked St. Clair's, worked at the Health Sciences Center, finished up as a referral nurse. Uh, mom, mom doesn't like me talking about her on the show. I should probably knock it off. No. No, my sister worked at the Grace and St. Clair's. Okay. Mm, so they may have known each other. They just may have. I'm glad you called this morning, Gail. Thanks a lot. Okay. And thank you for your time, sir. My pleasure. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, let's roll. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Mayor Mark Wilson. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How's it going? Excellent. Thanks, man. How you doing? Good. It's a gorgeous day. It is. Uh, uh, I should probably, uh, you know, shout out to all the farmers out there who are working hard and making sure we, uh, we all have stuff to eat here in the province. Um, we harvested, what, 320 pounds of garlic this year, which was which is super fun. It's it's a lot of work to clean, but um, anyways, it, it's it's been successful. It was a good growing season. Yeah, well, it was certainly all the conditions were there for a successful year. I know the initial pressures of the inflated cost of feed and food and fertilizer was a massive concern. We were hoping that especially the smaller and medium-sized farmers were able to get through the season because I see the stories, I hear the stories all the time. But yeah, big shout out to the farmers for sure. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, as an organic farmer, you know, co- I keep costs down because I use, uh, you know, manure and compost and those kind of things. But that's not why I'm calling today. Um, 
Patty, I'm calling. I, I live downtown on Livingstone Street. And uh, for the past year and a half or so, we have uh, in this neighborhood experienced uh, an alarming rate of crime and disturbances. And this sort of ties into the conversation last week and, you know, the ongoing conversation in Rabbit Town, uh, where a lot of these issues were identified. But but some of the, you know, the 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 links are with addictions, mental health, poverty. Um, so there's a lot of similarities, and I'm sure there's a lot of similarities across the city. Um, I just wanted to uh, 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 to let, let you and your listeners know, I sent a letter to Minister Osborne, Minister Abbott, uh, who is the public safety minister, Osborne, obviously the, the health minister, and, uh, sorry, Abbott being the CCD, CSSD minister, um, and Hogan, the public safety minister. There's a, there are links between all of these things. So organized crime is increasing, and I think it's increasing because their people are desperate. Well, of course um, they I, are. What I don't understand is in some of these areas, whether it be your neighborhood or others, is we hear stories like this. The cops are called, the cops show up, the same people, same problems persist day after day after day and time after time and nothing is done about it. Seems to me that screams the obvious, is that when you have people who are desperate, and whether we're talking about mental health issues and or addictions and or poverty, if we have just a revolving door of visits by the police and nothing changes, nothing happens, then we have to ask ourselves why. Yeah, and I think like a lot of this, Patty, comes down to housing. Um, to me, that's where we can make the most impact. Um, I know that, uh, and, and that was sort of the topic of the letter that I sent to these three ministers, health, public safety, CSS, CSSD. Um, we, I, I believe we have a shortage of supervised housing, just like, you know, Stella Burry operates supervised housing. I believe the gathering place has some as well. So people with these ongoing issues, these sort of deep seated issues that are, um, in their lives, some of them need supervision. Uh, I'll just give you a little excerpt of what's happened in my neighborhood. Okay. So, so we have, so the, the RNC came in over the summer, they uh, searched a house. They found uh, what? 1400 points of crack um, at, at, at one point at the high point, there was, you know, two, 300 people a day going to this house passing down the street, waiting at five in the morning to get their crack. Um, it's, it's an enormous issue. Um, so in this house, the gentleman who has lived there uh, or continues to live there, I believe is supported by the province to live in that house under a private landlord. There is no supervision for this gentleman. What's happened is organized crime has come in. They've taken over. They've, they're operating out of the house. They've basically just, you know, they probably uh, feed off his addiction issues and contain and supply in that house. And, and that seems to be a little bit of a model that's ongoing. And I think that the solution is more housing. We have heard, uh, what was it, the, the 12th of October, um, Minister Abbott said there are 272 NL housing units vacant, 120 in need of repair. So when are these going to happen? When, when is this going to happen? When are they going to get 
filled? When are they? When are the repairs going to be done? That why is that not being prioritized? Excellent question. You know, and people ought to know how people characterize some of these issues, but. I got this one person in particular telling me that housing is a privilege. People have to work. People have to get out and earn their own keep, earn their own way. Housing is right. I mean, if we're kidding ourselves, if we think that we're going to constitute or equate uh, someone's ability to work or not, or their mental wellness or not, or their uh, addiction uh, concerns or not, and we're just going to throw them to the wolves because of a variety of societal factors and we don't consider housing a right, it's just nonsense. I mean, we're making things worse. That's what I think sometimes we fail to do, is if we're going to, as opposed to talking about what's the morally the right thing to do, is the cost-benefit analysis. The more the problem uh, prolongs, the more expensive it gets. So pick a lane. You want government to be thrifty with their money, but you don't want to put a roof over someone's head? Okay, let's do the look at uh, 24 months down the road when that person continues to not have a safe place to live. What do you think the cost will be? Certainly a lot more than it would be to put put them in somewhere safe to live. Yeah, I mean, just strictly from an economic perspective, Patty, it makes a lot of sense yep. to create a lot to create more housing to for the federal government. I mean, where are ministers? Where are MPs on the rapid housing initiative, um, you know, why is this not being prioritized? Um, it makes way more sense to do this up front. Put people in houses, whether it's supervised or unsupervised, remove the, the toxic uh, landlord-tenant relationship that occur with slum landlords. And, you know, if people are happy, if people and not even happy, but just you know uh, appropriately housed, I think the connections to organized crime and the connections to crime in general will dissipate. It's an economic issue. It's very simple. Where is our province? Where is our federal government on this? The feds were here not long ago with an affordable housing initiative. It's a fine thing to say things. It's quite another to do things. So let's see where we land because. The problems are just getting bigger and growing by the day. And a lot of it can indeed boil back down to uh, where you live and how that's supported. No, no doubt about it, Mark. I appreciate the time. Anything else you want to say this morning? Yeah, uh, well, kudos to Sheila O'Leary, who has been very responsive and you know, at City Hall on many of the issues ongoing in, in the neighborhood. Um, uh, I invite Minister Abbott Hogan and Osborne to write me back to the letter that I've sent to them. Um, you know, we, we really need, uh, we need more impact against organized crime in this city. Uh, I think we're in year four of five with the federal government's, uh, guns and gangs initiative. Something else needs to come on. Um, are the issues, are these issues related to the pandemic? Um, I, I don't know. Um, is this an, is this, you know, just the cost of living has gone up tremendously. Um, is, is the increase, is the perceived increase in crime because of that? I don't know, but where is our federal government on this? And why do we not have a, a quicker response from our provincial government? We need action and we need it now. That's, that's my main focus here today in calling. And I appreciate you taking my call, Patty. You're always welcome, Mark. Thanks for this. Thanks, and have a great day. You too. See you and your listeners. Okay, buddy. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Christine wants to tell us about her experience in a recent hospital stay. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Christine. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay, thanks. How are you doing? 
good so far. Great. <laughs> um, now, I wanted to talk to, uh, to you about my hospital stay. Um, number one, uh, four years ago, I contracted double pneumonia. And I was so sick, I didn't know how sick I was. I thought I had a flu. But uh, they took me to the hospital, and I was so bad, I went into a coma for six weeks. Oh, my God. And in that six weeks, they did not move me. I was on my back for six whole weeks. And when they finally took me out of, when I came out of the coma, um, I didn't know it at the time, but I had a bed sore, and it was so big, and it was on my tailbone. It was so big and so deep, you could put a teacup in it. Oh, my. And that was on top of having tubes coming out of my lungs and, and that kind of stuff. And it was a horrid experience for me. I, I think I cried every day there. Um, and what I was wondering is, is there a statute of limitations on medical negligence? Because that's all it really was. I don't know the answer to that question. But, you know, if someone incapacitated, you would imagine they would be keeping you clean. So wouldn't that include, you know, making sure that bed sores didn't develop because you were unable to move yourself around because you were in a coma? It just you sounds so, so neglectful to me. Absolutely. You would think so. But um, I, uh, I didn't even know it was there, to be honest, uh, because I couldn't see it, obviously. Um, but I had a, a friend take a picture, and when he did, he nearly fainted. And when I saw it, I nearly fell out of my bed. <laughs> when did this take place? Uh, well, I'm 59 now. That took place when I was 55, so that was four years ago. So I just clicked up uh, very quickly while we were talking. So there are time limits to sue for medical malpractice. It's within two years of when a reasonable person would have realized they suffered an injury from a healthcare provider's actions and that the court system is an appropriate place to seek a remedy. So that's basically what I just found there. And well, but I'm still suffering, and I think it's because that all started. Mm -hmm. um, when I get out of the hospital, I got one good summer where I could. Where I felt okay and I was able to go out and I, I could walk and um, and then one day I get out of bed and it was shortly after I got out of the hospital and I don't know what I did I turned the wrong way and I got sciatica that's nasty that's really nasty oh you wouldn't want it <laughs> um, and my sciatica was on my left side but I've been using my right leg so like so long and relying on it so long that now it's the bad one and my left side's great isn't that exactly what happens right you got a sore hip and because you're trying to accommodate the sore hip all of a sudden you got a sore knee <laughs> because you're you're right. you know changing your gait right and i go around with a walker and or a cane and I usually use the walker, not the cane, because I feel more secure with the walker. Mm -hmm. um, and I use it around the house. I don't. Use, I try not to take it outside. But these days, like I fall all the time. I've fallen countless times since I've gotten out of the hospital, and there seems to be no reason for it. I don't get dizzy. I, I just drop like a stone. 
I'm really sorry to hear all of this has happened to you all in the hospital and since your discharge. Terrible. Yes. Oh, it's been a horror story. And like uh, now I'm I'm in in the house. I can't go out alone. Because if I fall, who's going to pick me up? Mm-hmm. Um, when I went to my doctor, he offered me uh, some opioids, and which I quickly said, no way. <laughs> and instead of doing that, I saved every cent I could, and I got myself a comfort dog, a little shih tzu. And how's that working for you? It's great. <laughs> it's much better than any drug could do. And that's to all the drug users out there, too. It's amazing how and where people find comfort that works for them. Yes. And, like, I I read the, you know, I see the news, I read the news. I know what opioids can do, and I said, no, I don't know, no part of that. And so I got myself a little shih tzu, and he's wonderful. He never takes his eyes off me. And, but when I did have to go out for something... He would pitch a right fish <laughs> <laughs> because he knows his job is to watch me. Protective of mom. Yes. What's the dog's name? Jesse. Is that the first dog you've had? It's the first dog I've ever had, yeah. Okay. And he's great. And But he used to get so upset. Oh, my God, I couldn't, and it would break my heart. And so then I started saving again, and I thought, maybe if I got him a little buddy, he would be so upset. So I got a second little shih tzu. <laughs> and they are great. They love each other. It's a wonderful thing. And I wouldn't trade it for any drug in the world. And, and that's lovely. So who's Jesse's buddy? Pardon me? What's the other dog's name? Jesse and who? The other dog is Georgie. Jesse and Georgie. Yes. Well, I hope you're doing well, and I'm glad you found some comfort in the form of a couple of little Shih Tzus. Take good care of yourself for Christine, and uh, give the two, uh, Jesse and Georgie, a big smooch for me. <laughs> and, well, for pain, I used to take Tylenol. I was only taking Tylenol. Um, there's no way I was taking any of those drugs that you get addicted to. But um, I was, like, my question simply was... Um, and I guess you answered it by saying two years. Mm-hmm. But it's been like four years for me now, but I'm still suffering, and I think it's because of that. Uh, it started with the pneumonia, because before that I was perfect. Yeah, it's a terrible chain of events, we'll say that much. Christine, they're flagging me off to the news, but I look forward to speaking with you again. Take good care. Take good care of yourself. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, uh, quick check with David. How are we doing on the phone? Dave, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we'll be speaking with you. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. All right, let's go say good morning to Eleanor from the Manuals, Manual River Interpretation Center. Good morning, Eleanor. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? Not too bad this morning. Thanks, you. Great. I'm doing good, and happy Halloween to you. Same to you. Thank you. I wanted to just uh, let everybody know about some of the programs that we have running at Manuals River. We do some regular uh, programs throughout the summer, and, of course, we're shifting now into the fall season. We're really starting to feel all the colors and the the light kind of going dimmer on us earlier in the day now. 
And so some of the regular programs that we have for, for youth and for families uh, are our Young Scientist Program and our Makers Club Program and our Trailblazers Program. And uh, Young Scientist is a regular program we've been running for many years. It happens every second Saturday morning. Uh, it's aimed at primary school children, and we pick a different scientific topic to um, explore each each session uh, through things like games and crafts and science experiments, different activities, stories, songs, hikes. Uh, so we have quite a lot of fun. We have one coming up uh, this Saturday from 1030 to 12 on the 5th of November. Um, it's going to be themed around migration. If people are interested in joining us for that, that's a drop-in program for primary kids and their caregivers. And then uh, for the next level up, we have our Makers Club, which happens for uh, elementary age children every second Sunday afternoon from 1 to 3. And that one is focused on maker spaces and Tinker Lab type things with uh, coding uh, being a big focus there. So if, if you have uh, someone who's very techy who wants to learn more about uh, things like the coding language Scratch, and all that kind of wonderful stuff. We have a fantastic interpreter, Justin, who runs that one. It's a really nice small group, so they get a lot of one-on-one attention um, to learn about the, the ins and outs of the world of coding. And then we also have, uh, just starting this week, uh, for upper elementary, early junior high age uh, youth called Trailblazers, and that one is going to be on Tuesday evenings from 6.30 to 8.30 and that one is based on individuals in history who have kind of blazed the trail. They've done something that maybe no one else has ever done before. They've been able to accomplish some seemingly unaccomplishable feat. Uh, so it's an intersection of people involved in the field of science and a bit of a history lesson. We try to make the people that we study sort of come to life. And we learn a little bit about what their life was like, things that they overcame and like barriers um, that they may have faced. And then we also look a little bit at what we study for, or what they study rather. So for example, we had like a session we did with Jane Goodall and we know that Jane was really interested in chimpanzees and we ended up uh, painting portraits of chimpanzees with our feet because we know that some chimps have, have been into painting and, and we just explored through a lot of fun and silly activities. So it's quite a, a interesting and an exciting program for youth that age. What were the what was the average age of the youth that were doing the uh, the Jane Goodall particular presentation? Um, Trailblazers. So that's usually about grade five to grade seven or eight, and it's kind of an age where you kind of sometimes you don't always know where to fit or what to do, and um, it's a way for like-minded kids who are interested in science and history and also interested in leadership. Um, to to bring all those interests together. And we look at how these people in history, how these interesting figures um, overcame whatever barriers they were facing and they beat the odds to do these fantastic feats that, that they achieved. And we look at, well, what are the, the common um, qualities that they had? What What is something that we might have even within ourselves or that we can develop within ourselves to be a little bit more like them and to build resilience and to learn leadership skills, which is really important, I think, uh, going forward in the, the world that youth are facing today um, with all the new and interesting challenges that they're going to come across, uh, that they have some of these skills. Uh, I don't know if you know the answer to this. I'd be just curious, how many of the participants knew who Jane Goodall was, I wonder? 
I think that we ch- we on purpose try to choose some trailblazers that are well known, um, and then we also try to choose some that are lesser known as well and bring them to light. So, for instance, um, a lot of the women that we end up studying in their day, maybe they um, were not officially classified as scientists, like Jane Goodall wouldn't have been considered a scientist by a lot of male scientists uh, of the time. And in fact, she was criticized and, um, you know, she was sort of downplayed uh, because she named the chimps um, and they thought that that was too sweet and too girly a thing to be doing. But the fact that she got to know the chimps and their personality and that she had a different perspective as a female actually is what led her to some of her best discoveries that, um, you know, the chimps could use tools and, um, they were very capable of learning, and, and there was much more to them than just some random animal with a number. Yeah. Personalities. yeah. She, she, she was coddled by the community, too, and treated as less than uh, in the mm-hmm. world of research or science or academia, whatever the case may be. She wasn't even able to travel by herself to some of these countries, like Tanzania, yeah. for instance. So that kind of stuff, I mean, it's just remarkable. And we're not, we're not talking centuries ago. We're talking no. recent history. Amazing stuff. Well, Patty, I, I always say I have a grandmother right now. Uh, her name's Kitty Power, and she's in St. Pat's. She's 104 years old. She's born in 1918. If she's still alive and she can remember things that happened and she is connected to me, then, you know, if it happened within her lifetime, it's really not that far away. And if you have a baby born today and they could potentially live another 104 years into the future then that future is not that far away either we're more connected to these people we have more in common uh with them um when you think of history like just a bunch of dates this war happened this this person was killed this you know thing event went on um it can kind of get like droning on not that exciting not that important but when you learn about the people and you learn about their character and who was uh, uh, the players in their lives and and what were the the things that they faced. Um, You can find a lot of commonalities between adversity that they had been through and can gain a lot of strength, I think, from um, realizing that people have been dealing with these hard things and and different situations and they've been resourceful and they've found ways to get around uh, all the things that were blocking them from their dreams or or what they had wanted to, to be doing. Appreciate so the time. Good inspiration for that. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I'm trying to think of some of the names for some of the some of the oh, uh, chimpanzees. I know one was named Flo, and there was a Gigi. <laughs> I can't remember anymore yeah. though, off the top of my head. Yeah, anyway. and there were there have been a lot of famous chimps too uh, along the way, and, and we study you know more than just Jane Goodall. We look at um, ladies like Marie Curie and uh, Bessie Coleman and. We've studied men as well. It's not just uh, women, of course, but we look at people of color. We look at like all different kinds of barriers that people have faced for lots of different reasons and, and how they overcame it. We looked at Leonardo da Vinci. Like we've, we've developed quite a lot of programming around this, and we've had guest speakers come in. We studied Hypatia, and we had a lady who was a professor of uh, philosophy at MUN come in and, and tell us what is philosophy, what are some of the big questions that, people have been wondering about so there's quite a lot of depth to the program and I, I do think that youth get quite a lot out of it and one youth said to me one of the sessions you know of all the extracurricular stuff I have to do my mom and dad make me do I usually think oh gosh I don't want to go it's going to be boring I'm not going to enjoy myself and she was really surprised actually said she she said when she came to our session she said but we're like actually having fun like this is actually good I really want to come to this so 
that's a high compliment from a 12-year-old. I think I would really uh, be glad to hear that, you know, our interpreters are fun-loving people and they want to share what they know and that that kind of translates uh, to the youth who attend. We do have a really a fun environment here. We get to do a lot of cool stuff. Sounds like some awesome programs. Eleanor, appreciate the time. Stay in touch. Okay, thank you, Patty. You're All best and happy and safe Halloween to everyone tonight. Here, here. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. As Eleanor from the Manuals River Interpretation Center. Some cool programs there. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Line number four. Wanda, you're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. You? I'm good. Great. It's a lovely day. It's a wonderful day. <laughs> okay. The reason I'm calling in is about, it's not only the wait times in the emergency, emergency departments, is actual amount of support people that people are bringing in to those emergency par- departments sitting and waiting for hours on end when there's probably no seats for somebody that need a seat. Uh, my son had to go to Governor General and he had an infection in his face. He stood up for three and a half hours while there were some people there that had two and three support people with him. I understand it was a small child or a senior citizen, but uh, nobody never offered up a seat and no one ever came out and said well we have people here that are standing for a length of time when you guys could probably some could go out in their car and have a seat while we're waiting i mean i know that since covid happened with an aging population it seemed like the perfect storm for the whole healthcare system now i don't know if i'm right or if i'm wrong there's something in there that's that's not you know that's not solved uh, but that's above my pay grade, of course. Uh, but my son went there. He had a seat. Someone else sat in it when he went to triage. He stood up, and he was in really bad shape. Uh, the infection was going towards his eye. And I, he had texted me and told me that he stood for three and a half hours while there was people there with support people of three people. Uh, I don't think there's a need for that. I mean, I know that, you know, the wait long, times are long. But it's very frustrating if you're sitting there knowing that, or stood there knowing that, you know, someone could probably wait in their car for a few minutes, not the patients, but support people. I don't know if I'm being... Well, how do you know know they were support people? How do you know what they were, who they were, period? Just curious. Okay. Uh, My son said that a nurse actually came out, and she went around, and she asked who was here, what they were here for, and my son listened, and when he did, they said that, no, we're only here with this one. No, we're only here with that one. And the conversation went on, and he was listening to people as they were chit-chatting back and forth, and he realized then when one person went in, when they came out, was one person in particular, three people left because they were all together. I don't know why that would be. It's a, no. a strange setup. I, I think we take that a step further. You mentioned uh, waiting out in your car, what have you. Look, I can arrive at the the barber shop or the hair salon and text them when I arrive so that they can be prepared for me or vice versa. I don't know why we can't implement something quite simple like that. You give them your cell phone number, you sit in the car, listen to the radio or, you know, more comfortable and by yourself and not sitting around people who are unwell for hours on end. I don't know why that's impossible. Now, someone will tell me why it's too much work. It's about as much work as walking into the waiting room and saying someone's name out loud, just picking up your cell phone. And, and send them a yeah. quick text, your next, or five minutes, or whatever the, the message would read. But I don't know why we can't do something a little easier than that. 
Yeah, like there's got to be a solution somewhere down the line. Uh, I mean, COVID numbers are on the rise in every community. Uh, I know I'm here in Carbonier, and I'm running like three minutes from the hospital, if that. And that's walk, like walking five minutes. And, you know, you're sitting in these rooms that are all jam-packed with all these people. You know, it's okay that, okay, the patients, that's, this could be a little bit different, but why have two and three support people with you? It, it just, it don't add up to me. Like I said to my son, do you want me to come up? I mean, he's 26. He said, no, ma'am, stay where you're two. There's no seats, and you don't want to take up a seat from somebody else. But I'm thinking, well, how come other people are not thinking on the same train of thought, you know? Uh, but like I said, if they could go out in their car and then they could, flick them a text and say, your name is ready to come up. You're, you're only like a minute away. Not even that. You know, I don't know if there's an answer, but I'm sure that there's got to be something that could be done somewhere along the line. Now, I know we were at emergency one day before because I had to go up, and uh, this was way back. And they came out and they said, if there's any more than one support person here per person, you have to wait in your vehicle because we do not have the space to accommodate you. And that was fair enough, you know what I'm saying? So they got up then with so many people that left the hospital emergency room, which freed up like six or seven seats, you know. And it's pretty frustrating when people are sitting there or stood there for lengths of time, leaning on a wall, waiting and knowing that they can't leave emergency, that they need to get in. Like my son really needs those antibiotics. And he's, you know, he had no other choice but stay because the swelling was gone towards his eye. And the dentist said, you need to go now. So he never had that option to leave and go, you know, but other people may have had a different option. Like if he had to go there with two support people, he didn't need two support people. I understand. You know? Yeah. Uh, someone that I just recall that someone had sent me a message last week, I'll say, mm-hmm. um, saying that in Norway, you actually have to call, like, for instance, when we call 811 here. You actually call a number, describe your symptoms, as to, and then be told whether or not you should or should not present yourself at an emergency room. Because sometimes, you know, and I get it, if you don't have a family doctor and you don't have access to a healthcare professional for whatever your needs might be, last resort will be the emergency room. But that might be just yet another idea where, for instance, if someone just needs to refill their prescription for an anti-inflammatory because their back is hurting or something. Absolutely. Maybe we can find out a way to give that person some assistance without seven or eight hours plus someone who wants to just keep them company, for instance, sitting yeah. in a waiting room who would be Absolutely. also occupying a chair and a doctor or a licensed practical nurse or whatever the case may be. We I appreciate the time, back. Wanda. Anything else we quickly before I go? Yeah, oh, sorry. We almost need, I said, to go back to the drawing board. <laughs> you know, go back to the drawing board and figure out what, what can be done and what will work mm-hmm. and what won't work. And some of it's just not working right now. And I know, and everybody got a story. And I know if I'm sick today and you're sick too, and you got probably, we got the same symptoms, but the way that you react to your symptoms are different to mine. I might feel like, oh my gosh, I'm dying. I need to go to emergency. You might be like, yeah, whatever, I'm fine. You know, and I understand that. But like I said, we need to go back to the drawing board, I think. But anyway, thank you very much for taking my call today, Patty. Appreciate the time. Hope all is and well. happy Halloween. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, happy. Happy Halloween. I don't know. I haven't dressed up for Halloween in I don't know how many years. I know it's just a bit of fun, and there's some of the uh, our co-workers are dressed up here in the office today. I just saw Wonder Woman walk by there a couple of minutes ago. So there you go. And again, just before we get to the news, I said off the top, you know, it's just a hopefully received as a friendly reminder 
that, you know, kids get excited. I live in a school neighborhood, and so there's going to be some trick-or-treaters hopefully out and about tonight. And unfortunately, one of the streets in our neighborhood is really wide. It becomes a bit of a racetrack, so it's just a friendly reminder that they're going to be out there and beating around and maybe just maybe jacked up a little bit on some sugary treats that they plucked out of their bag and maybe just maybe crossed in front of you, so... Just keep that in mind when you're out and about this evening. Okay, let's see here. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, tons of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Kim Hardy. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today. You? Happy Halloween. Thank you. You too. I'm actually calling. I'm... Um I'm the recreation coordinator here at Lane's Living in Carboneer, personal care home. And um, I'm only just going to keep this short today. Um, we just like to let everybody know that we are having a trunk or treat for the kids this afternoon between 2.30 and 4 o'clock. A trunk or treat. So cars in the parking lot, the kids just come up and something's delivered from the trunk. Is that what that is? Yes. Oh. And if they have relatives here in the home. Uh, just let us know, and we can get uh, the relative to come out, their their nan or their pop or aunt or uncle, and they can come out and they can greet them and give them their uh, their little bag of uh, candy and stuff. And um, the residents here would really like to uh, to uh, interact with some of the kids. Um, they're going to gather in our kitchen in our dining room, and they look forward to seeing some of the kids come by today. Oh, no doubt they would. You know, and it's one of those special days where it's really all about the fun. Some people will make it all about the scare or the spooky, but it's just about the fun. It really is. And so I'm sure it'll be most welcomed by the residents to see the kids pull up in their in their costumes or their outfits this afternoon and get themselves a treat out of the trunk. So what time did you say it was, Kim? Uh, from 2.30 to 4 o'clock. Terrific. Hopefully it's a big success and hopefully the residents enjoy it. Sounds good. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Kim Hardy out at Lane's Retirement, Carboneer. Let's go to line number one. Jesse, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Top shelf. You? Doing good. A little bit frustrated, though. What's going on? Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the intersection of Blackhead Road and Jordan Place. I am so. That's a doozy, that one. Yes. And, you know, we've been working with the, the city of St. John's and with Carl Ridgely and trying to get something done at that location. And it seems like we've come on a, a bit of an impasse with the city. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm getting a bit frustrated. I don't know where to turn. Give us your best shot at describing the intersection and why it's as notoriously dangerous as it is. Well, it's a bit of a grade coming up, as you know, at past state heights. And then the, that roadway, if you continue on, it goes right on out to Cape Spear. Uh, the major issue is with the cars that are coming toward the city. There's a very short line of sight there in the intersections. So the people that are leaving the stop sign on either side, either on Jordan Place or on Linegar, have a real hard time seeing the traffic that's coming, say, towards the city. And they start to move out, and before you know it, they have somebody that's coming down towards the city, and there's a, a lot of close calls there, a lot of problems. And not only the short line of sight, but you sometimes behind the wheel, you get a little bit, uh, going a bit too fast, simply because you're on the downhill. Yes, so. and I'm glad you mentioned that, because the city actually put up the the speed flashing speed signs to show people their speeds and also record the speeds of the people traveling through there. Mm -hmm. And on average, it's over double the, the speed limit that people are going through there at, uh, even with the signs that, that show people how fast they're going. Because, you know, as you know, it's a downgrade. And most people, you know, are going through there. If they're coming from Pity Harbor, Maddie's Cove. They're on their way to, to work probably. And, you know, it's, it's easy, very easy to do. 
Oh, yeah, no doubt. Oftentimes when I'm coming out that way, I, you know, try to be mindful even of driveways because there's a couple of those really steep downhillers where the driveway is right there before you can even see it sometimes. So there's lots of opportunities to get yourself in some trouble out there. That's right. We've even gone and done a community survey, and we have 96% of the people that have said that that intersection has been a problem for them or they've had near misses at that intersection. So, I mean, the city, I know the city has looked at several different options there, but it seems like there has been nothing in the last little while. And, and you know, i got to give Carl Ridgely credit. He's, he's really working hard on this because it actually was one of his campaign promises to get this intersection looked after. But I'm just, I, the reason I'm calling you is because I'm starting to run out of options of where to go and, and who to talk to. I just thought you might be able to help out. Yeah, let's see what we can do. So what are the proposed solutions? Because traffic calming measures, I always found the most effective one is the flashing signs to remind me or to show me just how fast I am going. I think they've been very helpful. I know it's a primary artery, so I don't think it can accommodate a speed bump. So what are the suggestions being made to maybe slow people down and make it le- less dangerous? Well, I mean, there is the option of the latest one has been a raised sidewalk because, as you know, there is a... a a crosswalk there, and there's a lot of children that leave that part of Shea Heights to go over to St. John Bosco. So, you know, a raised sidewalk, which is sort of like, a, you know, a speed bump, but, uh, you know, there's, as you know, it's much wider, so it's a little bit easier on the vehicles. And I, I'm at a, I really don't know why a speed bump would, would not work there. Um, I mean, we've gone through a number of different options. As you know, I'm, I'm a retired RNC officer, and to have police there, all that does is just do a temporary fix. Yep. You know, uh, you know, it's not about enforcement. We're not looking to give people tickets. All we want is just to make our community safer. So. The reference I made to a speed bump is some of the major arteries that are the first responders' only access point, well, I'm, I'm told, and maybe i am been told wrong or erroneously, is that you can't put speed bumps on those particular roads. Like you can put one on... Uh, you can do a bump out on Duckworth Street or on New Gower Street or whatever the case may be, but you can't put a speed bump, for instance, on Military Road. So is that, am I, do I have that right, Jesse? That's not That's not one of the issues that has come up regarding the speed bump. Okay. The only, the only issue we had with speed bump was apparently the, the number of cars. There had to be a certain number of cars in order for, in order to use that. And, I, you know, as you know, there's speed bumps all over this city. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and all kinds of different locations. And, you know, I don't have anything actually in writing that says why the speed bump won't work, other than just you know information coming back from Carl through the city. But the last option that we heard was this raised sidewalk, and it's just you know we want something done. Like, you know, we know how dangerous it is. We have the community support with the survey, and you know, which we, we just need new options because I mean, someone's going to get seriously hurt at that intersection, and you know, it's it's been an issue for our community since long, long before. And you know, it seems sometimes it seems like Shea Heights is the last. Because uh, if, if you drive through Airport Heights or you drive through Cowan Heights, there's speed bumps everywhere. So, I mean, we have this huge issue, and it seems like right now it's, it's been falling on deaf ears. It really is. You know, we even have our support of Carl, and uh, I know other uh, counselors have spoke up on it, and I know Ron has also supported it. It's just like, where, when is this finally going to be done? Because these solutions, whatever it may end up being, are not long-drawn affairs of uh, engineering and stuff. We have them. We know how they work. We know where they are. We know how to apply them to the road. So I don't know what the hang-up is. We'll reach out to the mayor's office to see if he can give us an update from the big chair. Like you mentioned, all the places where there's speed bumps. Uh, close by where I live on Ennis Avenue, which is a real racetrack of a street, out of nowhere, there's four different sets of speed bumps. And one of the observations made by my neighbor, which I thought was quite astute, is I wonder does it have the 
hopeful impact of slowing people down. They'll slow down for the bump, but will they speed up in between the bumps <laughs> to recover time? I don't know, but I certainly slow my rig down to take on the speed bumps. It's those big black plastic ones as opposed to a, uh, a bump of pavement itself. Yeah, even the temporary ones, there's ones they can put in for a short period of time. If we were to put it in and, and try it out and see how it worked out, and then, you know, if it was, you know, good, then continue and put something there permanently. But, you know, I, I, again, I, you know, I, I've, I've called you with a number of great things that happen on Shea Heights and, and how proud we are of our community board where we work with the city. Um, but in this case, it seems like, you know, we're just getting so frustrated because there's nothing, you know, there's no final result. And I've been working on this myself at least a year trying to get something done. So... Let's see if I can get an answer from the mayor's office. No problem. I appreciate your time and on the air. Thank you. Thanks, Jesse. Take care. Okay, bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, another one for the break? Yes, why not? Let's go to the four. For Paul, you're on the air. Morning, Paddy. Morning. Paddy, I just wanted to bring it to the attention of your listeners. Uh, VOCM has been advertising for some time that Dale Jarvis will be doing a feature on your station tonight. Could you just <laughs> you, you want to give any particulars to Paddy? Let's see if I can find out what the particulars are. Uh, you know what I'm going to have to do because I'm not exactly sure what time it is. I did oh. hear yeah. Dale on with Jerry Lynn Mackey this morning, so I can tell you why. Oh, you have the deets? Okay, because I don't. Uh, no, all I got uh, from uh, from your station was that uh, Halloween night between seven and nine p.m. Dale Jarvis would do it, be doing a special Halloween program on your stuff on your on your channel. Okay. Uh, he'd be giving out some of his own favorite uh, ghost stories as well as uh, callers can call in with their own. I think but, that's terrific. Dale is, Dale is incredible. Yeah, like I've got a couple of these books there in, in the room there, and he's a good author, I must say. <clears throat> but I was glad to hear that. that uh, I'll certainly be listening in tonight anyway, for sure, right? Eh? Give me the details one more time. What time's <laughs> the start? <laughs> <laughs> well, Halloween night. <laughs> Today, yeah. Between 7 and 9 p.m. Lovely. So that's usually the drive time show or the evenings with Greg and Claudette as a rule. But it's Dale Jarvis tonight and even an opportunity to phone in. Yes, Perfect. Sir. Yeah, it's going to be wild. It's going to be wicked. Well, thanks for your time, uh, Petty. Thanks a lot for putting me on the spot, Paul. Okay. <laughs> okay, man. All right, bye-bye. <laughs> I didn't know. I did hear part of the interview. But in the room where I do some prep work here in the morning, I can't necessarily hear it as clear as when I was in the hallway initially. All right, final break of the morning. When we come back, one of our faves, Bob Thorne. He's in the queue. Don't go away. Halloween night. Halloween night, your VOCM is opening up the Haunted Hotline with host Dale Jarvis, author of Haunted Ground, Ghost Stories from the Rock. <laughs> Dale shares some of his favorite ghost stories and invites you to call in with your own. It'll be spooky, creepy, and spine-tingling. Spine-tingling. VOCM's Haunted Hotline with Dale Jarvis from 7 to 9 p.m. This Halloween on your VOCM. Operators are standing by. And welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Bob. You're on the air. Uh, happy Halloween, Patty. Same to you, Bob. Uh, right. By the way, did you get the envelope I sent you? I did get the envelope. Did you get the fish? No. Oh, my. I had a buddy actually come up and give me a little bit, and I gave him your number. He said he was going to drop it down. I'm really disappointed. I'll take care of it right away. Okay. Listen, by the way... Uh, did the record work about the sports personalities on it? It did. I listened to one side, uh, and I haven't had the opportunity to give it a flip, but it did work famously. It was interesting. Right, and I sent you the VOCM stocking because I don't have a fireplace anymore. It's going to find a home in my home, Bob. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, good on you, man. You're a good man. And I, you never know what you're going to find in it. 
Uh, yeah, that's right, uh, too. Okay. I was going to uh, speak on seals first. They're having high-level talks on seals. What to do about the big population of seals. Well, this is on the go now for over 70 years because I remember back in 52 when we were allowed to shoot the seals and they paid us to do it. $10 a seal and $10 more if you had it processed. And now there's 8,000, million seals or more and we still got the problem. So it's a problem, but politicians and academics, nobody seems to know what to do about the seals. So I don't know, but they're having high-level talks now, the academics and the politicians, and I hope they come up with some solution or there'll be no fish, crab, or anything left. Uh, so anyway, uh, let's hope they can come up with a solution to cut down the poly, poly, the population of seals or let us go shoot them if anybody wants seal don't arrest them the, if you want to kill a seal take a seal or keep a seal as a pet whatever you want to cut down the population of seals Anyway, okay. the other topic I was going to mention on is the old Newfoundland. Now, going back, I can go back many, many years. I was born when Newfoundland was a dominion. Now, we've had commissioner government. We were known as a colony. Now we're known as a province of Canada. We've had three flags, Union Jack pink, white, and green, and now we got another one, and uh, we changed the name of our province. There are so many changes, I think the time has come to leave things alone and let things as they are, because we've seen so many changes. Well, I suppose the older you are, the more changes you remember. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but anyway... Uh, if they change the old, there's so many cultures here now. You're not going to please everybody. So, and then the people who were, you know, had the had the old for fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty, or ninety years, they don't want to change. So, if you do something, well, leave things alone, and maybe there'll not be no uprising. You know. I just don't really quite get the whole decision-making process at Memorial uh, University regarding the Old Newfoundland. You know, if it's about inclusion, that's where I get completely baffled. Inclusion, it's right there in the world. They took something away. You're not including anything by taking something away. If there was going to be some massaging of the song to include Labrador, that's one thing. If we were just going to add the uh, the separate song, which is the Old Labrador, to the ceremonies, that's quite another. I just don't quite get it. And, you know, I've got a funny feeling. It's as much about uh, Labrador not being included as it is references to, to God and things like that, which I, are people really insulted when those references, the song that was originally written by Sir Cavendish Boyle in 1902, was our national anthem. We abandoned it in 1949. In 1980, we readopted it as the official anthem of the province. And now the official anthem of the province is not good enough for a convocation? Like, I don't really get it. I think maybe this one was overthought. I think so, yeah, because 
next thing they want to do away with the monarchy and next thing oh Canada maybe they'll drop that or God save the king or uh, you know so now Labrador by the way they got their own old they, they got their own flag so uh, it's getting a bit confusing you know the Labrador, like when some some people in Labrador, when they hear references to the island and what they don't get insofar as investment in services, they get quite uptight or, and upset. That and fair enough. But you know, the first thing that I think when I see the Labrador flag is not that well. We why don't we have just one provincial flag? The first thing I think that's a beautiful flag. So I don't know why. Maybe uh, it's easy enough for me to say, living in the east end of town, how some of the Labrador might feel. But I'm sure they would have been quite tickled if the step taken by Mon was, we're also going to sing the O to Labrador to the melody of O Tenenbaum, and let's do it. Why not? Right, right, right. And I don't understand the Newfoundland flag. It's the provincial flag which incorporates Labrador, Newfoundland and Labrador. So Newfoundland really don't have a flag. They're saying the, the Newfoundland flag is the provincial flag. Well, how can it be? Because uh, if the Newfoundland flag is the Newfoundland flag, you know, by itself, well, then how can it be also uh, part of Labrador when it's the provincial flag? I don't understand that at all. As far as I'm concerned, we don't have a Newfoundland flag. We, the Newfoundland flag became the provincial flag. So it's all getting confusing. Yeah, I mean, I don't begrudge the folks of Labrador to have their own flag to describe the unique uh, nature of the big land itself. I mean, it's all fine and dandy by me. It doesn't, it doesn't affect me one way or the other. But there's, I think, growing voices about... You know, where does it end with things being taken away or people being ostracized or statues and buildings and all that stuff? Now, I think they're case-by-case, different conversations, by and large. But the old is a strange one. My email inbox, Bob, I try to talk about the big issues of the day here on the program. Sometimes you never know what's going to pique the interest of the listener. I have been absolutely flooded with emails, 95% of them complaints about removing the old from the ceremony. So I don't think you're alone, Bob. (laughs) All right, right, right. Anyway, it's been good talking to you because I'm here at Lane Lane's retirement, and uh, it's not the same as living home. But uh, well, when you get up my age, well, it's pretty difficult to live by yourself, you know. I'm sure it's exactly that, Bob. I hope you're well, and as usual, always appreciate the time and the conversation. Okay, and Patty, nice talking to you. My pleasure, Bob. Take good care. Okay, bye now. All right, bye bye. Yep, there you go. Bob Thorne. Now, I'm a little surprised he didn't get his fish because I had it all organized, but I will take care of that. In fact, it wasn't fish. It was cod tongues. That's what I owe Bob. little bag of cod tongues. All right, we're on the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. We haven't talked at all, really, about the changes that have happened and are continuing to be pending at this social media platform. It's pretty wild. We're there. We're still there. Give us a follow, suggestions based on what you heard on the show or something that you think should be discussed on the program. Also, email is an easy option to get in touch with us here. We're openline.vocm.com. But my favorite, and consider doing it tomorrow, is when you join us live in the queue. The reminder, one more time, is 273-5211 or elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. And please do stay with your VOCM throughout the day. 
And a special programming note here this evening at 7pm is uh, the Haunted Hotline with Dale Jarvis. That sounds like a bit of fun. All right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy, spooky Halloween. Talk in the morning. Bye-bye.